Well, good evening. How are we doing, Cornerstone? Good to see you guys. Gosh, I've missed being here. Um, for those of you who just started joining The Mine, my name is Greg Tonkinson. Um, I w- had the privilege of last year teaching The Mine, and, uh, and then um, God laid it on my heart to... I teach over at Valley Christian High School as well, and God laid it on my heart to, um, to really just dive into to what I'm doing and, and try to figure out teenagers. And so, um, so I'm pursuing a, a, um, a doctorate trying to figure out how, to, how do you effectively teach the Bible to, to Christian teenagers who, who are just flat out rebellious? I mean, what, what are the underlying features of that and why is that? And, and in the brief research I've done um, this summer... One of the the conclusions that most of the authors I'm reading are drawing is simply this: the the youth of today, guys, they're um, they're disengaged simply because they're not um, they're not in God's word. But what they're telling the surveys is, I know I should be in God's word. So it's not an issue of, well, I I just don't. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that this was going to be my source of direction in life and guidance in life. And I, I just didn't know. They know that. And they know they should be in God's word, but they're just choosing not to be in his word. And as a result, what is happening with this generation that's coming up behind us, and maybe even some of you uh, with your kids in here or grandkids in here, is they're having an understanding of of being comfortable living what, what we would deem as a contradictory um, life, at least mentally. Meaning, I've been to youth group enough, I've been to church enough to know that what's in here, uh, there are rights and wrongs in here. And these are absolutes. That I've been told this my entire life, that this is a book of absolutes, that God's word is true, and it's inerrant and infallible, and so what's in here, uh, I need to heed to. But because I'm watching people, friends, family members, peers, fellow students live a lifestyle or engage in acts that are displeasing to God, what the up-and-coming generation is doing is they're okay with, with going to bed at night saying, I know this to be true, and yet my friends or family are doing this, and, and quite honestly, I'm okay with that. Whereas maybe generations before them would at least know the issues and then have to land on one or the other. Knowing I can't subscribe to the Christian faith and say over here to the person that's struggling in a particular sin issue, well, that's okay. Just that song we just sang, um, that is the, 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 that's the banner that we hold up, which is God loves me, right? But what, what culture has done, what society has done, and, and really what... what what the American church is beginning to do is, is, at least the people in the American churches, they're beginning to flip it to say, not only does God love me, but God loves you. And we often say, wherever you're at. And what the teenager is hearing today, guys, is this, is that means that God is okay with whatever you're doing. And that's where the rub comes. Um, because then they'll come to church and hear someone preach an absolute truth about sin or rebellion and God's discipline, and then it confuses them. Because they thought they heard the message, well, God loves everyone. Yes. And God hates sin. Yes. 
And that's the, that's the issue they're missing. But the base of that is because they're not digging in here. They're not going to hear and saying, God, what do you have to say about this issue? Or what do you have to say about this attitude? Or what do you have to say about direction and guidance in life? And culture is swooping them up and saying, we'll take care of you. Um, and that's why I love, I missed being here. I love being here, not because of all, the, all of this. I love being here because we get to open this up. And if there's one thing that I want to do, I've got three kids at home, there's one thing I want to do for these three kids is be an imperfect dad and an imperfect leader and an imperfect uh, worker and father, but I want them to know I love Jesus and I, I love his word. And so my kids right now, I don't know what your kids think or, or your nieces and nephews, or, but my kids know that dad's somewhere at Cornerstone opening the Bible and reading it. And I think that's just... that. That's the lifeblood of, of what we do around here at Cornerstone. So thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me back. Um, got engaged a couple weeks ago, and so excited about that. So um, I'm on uh, both an academic high but also a relational high. And so uh, late December wedding, so, and you're all invited. So um, plan on coming. Um, Turn to, your, uh, turn to Genesis 11, I believe, is where Chris uh, wanted us to hit on tonight. Um, Genesis 11, and while you're turning there, let me go over a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, and that is, there is no mine next week. And then the following week, we'll kick off the fall series, which Chris is going to launch you into a year-long study on the book of Revelation. Uh, and, uh, and that will be fascinating. And so we're in Genesis right now, and then in two weeks, we'll be in Revelation. And so come back for that. Uh, the fall series begins August 20th, and there will be both childcare and kaboom during that time. And so if you have children or if that's an issue for you, childcare and kaboom during that time. I know over the past few weeks, Chris's has, um, uh, his style, his method would be more to give you 30 or 45 minutes or so worth of stuff and then Q&A. And if you've been with us the past year or so, I, I go a little different route, and that is I'll ask questions during this hour, as well as if you have thoughts or comments, please just raise your hands. We've got... Uh, great-looking men over here that are willing to run mics, and they will answer or get the mic to you. So feel free throughout this hour to ask questions uh, if, that, uh, if that is what you would like to do. So Genesis chapter 11 is where we're at. And the reason I started with just a little bit about where, where teens are at right now, guys, is because this passage that we're looking at speaks directly to this issue of, of the objective, really, of tonight, and that is... God has this plan, and he's always had it. And by his mercy, and by his grace, and by his, his love, he's included you in that plan. But here's the kicker, and here's where I think we get all messed up, is the plan is going to be accomplished, but it's not going to be so that he acquiesces to your sin. In other words, God's got this plan and he wants you and me to get on it. Because if we get on his plan, folks, it's, a, it's the ride of a lifetime. Wrought with pain and suffering and trials. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, we go to heaven with a smile on our face because we know we did well. We ran the race well. And I have to assume that for the majority of you in here, that's your desire. 
Yes, you're imperfect, and yes, you have struggles, and yes, you have you got, you got problems at work or at home, or, but you desire, you get up every day and you desire to run the race well. And God says, good, get, get on my plan here and let's go do this. But here's what you need to know is what he's saying to you and to me throughout the scriptures, I think, is I've got a plan. And I'm going to accomplish my plan. And if my plan's going this way and you're on my plan, but then you want to go this way, I need to let you know I'm going to grab you and put you back over here. I'm not, I'm not redirecting my plan for you, in other words. So, so here's God's plan, and here we are kind of in the plan. And what we have in Genesis 11 is two direct commands. And whenever God repeats something, guys, we have to know he means it. Um, that, that's just kind of, if God says it once, we should do it. But if he says it twice... So God says, remember back in Genesis 1, and Chris went over this with you, God says in Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and what? Multiply and do what with the earth? Fill it. Fill the earth. Um, Sex 101. Go, do it. Fill the earth, right? Just repopulate the earth and have fun with it and enjoy it and I want you to manage my creation and just, and just have a great time doing it. So Genesis 3 comes along and Adam and Eve sin and God kicks them out. And, and then Genesis 6 comes along, as I think Chris mentioned, and, and he, God looked upon the earth and what did he see? He saw evil and wicked. And so he said to Noah, grab your kids, grab their wives, grab the animals, get in the ark and go because I'm flooding the earth. The earth gets flooded And now we have basically a new beginning. And do you know what God then tells Noah and his kids? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I said that as a backdrop because of what we're going about to read in Genesis 11. So twice now, twice in in nine chapters... God has this purpose, he has this plan, and his plan is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In other words, go out into the adventure. Go go be the Christopher Columbuses and go be the pioneers and go and do, and I will be with you, and it will be a blast. But go. Genesis 11, chapter 1. And the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used the brick for stone and they used a tar for mortar. That word for tar there, by the way, is the same pitch it's the same substance that Noah used to seal the ark up it's the same that um, uh, Moses's mom used to uh, put him in the basket right the basket of reeds and stuff and it's to, it's to basically keep water out and they said in verse 4 come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad 
over the face of the whole earth. God says twice in nine chapters, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse 4 of chapter 11, come let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, guys, I don't know much. I really don't. But I know this. That doesn't sound like you're in on God's plan. In fact, I would argue it sounds like direct rebellion toward God's plan. Um, this, is, this is the way this, this passage lays out. And, and every now and then, God gives us a treat in Scripture in terms of grammatically. Um, this is called a chiastic form. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically the way that Moses wrote this, he wrote it in what they call, um, this would be like antithetical parallelism. Uh, Chiasm is the first word of the the Greek letter chi. It's an X. And so this forms, there's there's a parallel here. And so I have all nine verses up here. And it's kind of fun because once you understand this and you read the passage like this, then it begins to make sense that there is a main point to this passage. Watch this. So, so if we have parallels, and in this case it would be uh, opposite parallels or antithetical parallels, then verse 1 and verse 9 should have some sort of parallel. So, so let me just keep reading here. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, there are one people. They have all the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So verse 1 says, the whole, whole world had one language. So the antithetical parallel would be verse 9, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Do you see how this works? B, they settled on the plain of Shinar. Verse 8, they were scattered from the plain of Shinar. This is cool because it goes somewhere. And this is why I love God's word, guys. It's, not, it's fun like this. This is kind of fun stuff. I, this is because I need stuff like this. I need like, okay, here's the instructions. And, and there are chiasms all over the Bible. Sometimes they're forced, and, and I don't like when they're forced. Sometimes authors try to force them and twist it and stuff. This just lays right out. C, uh, verse 3, man says, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Verse 7, God says, come let us confuse their language. D, verse 4 Man says, let us build ourselves a city and make a name for ourselves. And then in verse 6, God says, if they do this, nothing will be impossible. Which leads us to which verse? Track with me, which verse? Five. And, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, guys, the center of the, of the chiasm uh, or the chiastic parallelism, the center is the main point. Most of the time. And in this case, sometimes it's two verses if there's an even number of verses. In this case, it's an odd number of verses. And so we land on verse 5. And that's really where I want to focus tonight. Not just for 
the sake of the text, but how it applies to you and me. And so verse 5 is simply this. And the Lord came where? Down. I think that that is the central point of this particular text. And the Lord came down. What does that mean? And what, you know, what? So let's just start back up in verse 1 and try to unpack this just a little bit tonight. And again, if you have questions or thoughts, uh, ask as we get through this. But this is where I want to land tonight is the Lord came down. And I guess I just want to say right up front, you can either get God's attention for a very good thing you've done or get his attention for something not so good. And guys, the, we have short lives here on earth, but a breath. Get God's attention for something good. Get God's attention because he's noticed that, man, through all the trials, that person, they've just been persevering. Get God's attention because, man, at work, you had that opportunity to blow up at your employees or coworkers and you chose patience. Get that attention because um, just the daily grind that we go through. Um, I got home, we got home yesterday from, or Sunday from Wendy's, and they shortchanged our order. And I know it's not, that's not like brain surgery, but is anyone frustrated by that but me? I mean, how hard is it to fill an order, to go order? And you know what they always say, by the way, complete side note here. The manager always says, well, you know, sir, did you check the bag? What? Did I check the bag? uh, Whose responsibility is that? I mean, it was was just incredibly frustrating. Um, I was at Burger King about two months ago. They did it twice to me, if you want. I got home. They screwed my order up. I went back, got a reorder, went home, still the wrong order. At that point, if you wanted to see a display of righteous anger, it was, I couldn't go there for like a few weeks. I was so embarrassed of, of, because I went back and I just laid into them so bad. So, we have opportunities for God to come down, basically, for God to notice us. And guys, in this particular passage, I got to tell you, when he noticed what these people were doing, it's not going to go well for them from here on out. It's just not. So, when the Lord came down in Genesis eleven five, 5, he, he notices. And now he's going to exact either blessing or judgment. And that, guys, is true 4,000 years later to your life today. God notices what you're doing. And he exacts blessing, or in this, in your case, in my case, it'd be discipline. Reproof. Um, Back to verse 1, and and let me just, because there's some very, very cool stuff in here. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Why is that cool or important? Because if you go back one chapter... Look at chapter 10, verse 5. From the coastlands, from the, these are basically the genealogy, the generations of, of um, Noah's kids, right? Shem, um, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 5, from the coastlands of the nations were separated into the lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families and their nations. Look at verse 20. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to the langu- their languages, by their lands and by their nations. Verse 32, and the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, 
And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth. So then you get to verse 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, and it says, now the whole earth used the same language of the same words. Do you see how that could be possibly confusing? Um, there's an answer to that, and, I, and I, it's not a difficult answer. But while we're on the subject, um, this is where, guys, I'm a big proponent. If you don't know Jesus, this this document, this book here, is will confuse you to no end. In fact, it wasn't meant for the non-believer to understand. Jesus says in the New Testament, he who has ears, what? Let him hear. First um, Corinthians, Paul says that this is foolishness to the natural man. Um, I don't know if we can throw it up here on the back screen here, um, but I was, as I was doing some studying this week, you know what this is? I don't know if you can see it. Oh, man, did I just screw that up? Can we get it back? These, okay, great. Do you see what the top, do you see what the top is there? Can you see that? This, this is called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. And so this is, these are skeptics that go through the Bible and they, um, they basically, I don't know, make fun of it, I guess. See on the right here? The right here is their comments. And these little keys here, absurdities, contradictions on the left here, um, bottom left here, um, absurdities, contradictions, family, you know, so they have little keys here. And then when they go through the passage, they, they make these little references over here on the right. And so, for, for instance, chapter 11, verse 1, um, their comment, the whole earth was of one language. Well, this could not be true since by this time there were already many languages, each unintelligible to the others. This is even admitted earlier in Genesis, the, the verses we just read, where other languages are mentioned before the Tower, Tower of Babel was supposedly constructed. Okay? And so they go through the entire Bible. They, they take their time to do this. And I mention that just to let you know this book, believe me, has thrown me for a loop many a day where I've gone to my knees and said, God, I'm thoroughly confused at this. But I've got to trust in the attributes of God that he's not a confusing God. And if God is the ultimate author of this document, folks, then this document can't be confusing just for confusing sake. So the natural man will do something like this. Your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, your employer who doesn't know Jesus will do something like this. And this just demonstrates once more the miracle of salvation. Who are you? Who was I to be saved to understand this? But for the grace of God, go I and you. So now that you have an opportunity to understand what the natural man cannot understand, what the natural man deems as foolish, the question is always, are you reading this to understand it? Are you taking advantage of the privilege God has given you and me to read it and understand it? I've mentioned this, I think, several times. I think the average American Christian has between six to eight Bibles somewhere on them. Do your own check here. How many Bibles do you have in your tablets, phones, at home, at work? How many do we have? And so it's not an issue of how many do we have. It's are we actually opening it up? Because you have the ears to hear. So how do we make sense of 11.1 then? Well, we simply... Did you ever read a book where the first chapter is like um, kind of the overview? 
the first chapter is like, you know, and, and here's the whole story basically. And then the subsequent chapters do what? They unpack that, right? That's all that Moses chose to do here was to unpack what happened prior to or during chapter 10. Chapter 10, guys, goes over hundreds of years of, gener- of the generational line. And simply Moses was trying to get back to, well, how did they all get their own languages? Well, let me explain it to you in nine verses. This is how it happened. So there's, there, need, there need not be confusion or contradiction here. All we simply need to do is go before God in his character of, of wisdom and say, God, I don't understand this. I need help here. Um, James says, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Ask for it. Don't shut the book up. Don't turn it over because you don't understand it. I, when I first read this, guys, the first time I read that, it didn't make sense to me. Because I would read chapter 10. And now you're, it seems like you're going backwards here. No, he's just unpacking it for us. That's all. And so that's what he does here. They had one language. And they used the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, verse 2, they found a plain in the land of Shinar or Babylon. And they settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and, build, uh, and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Again, I mentioned that, uh, you know, it's a little thing. But the fact that they're kind of building this um, to last really, guys, just suggests their deep-seated rebellion here. This isn't on a whim. This isn't you have a free afternoon, go build a, a little tent. This is, let's get the engineers together and build a structure that will reach up into the heavens. And the way we're going to design it is just in case we should endure another flood, we will build it so that it'll be basically waterproof. It will hold up. Which again goes back to this issue of man's rebellion against God. Because what did God promise Noah when he got off the ark? What's he never going to do again? Flood the earth. But when we, when we rebel against God, we don't listen to him or we just think what we're doing is just going to suffice. These people actually thought that they could build a structure that would reach up in the heavens and almost as if to say, we'll show God. And they haven't gotten his attention yet, but they're about to. Verse 4, they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And then we have, now you got God's attention. You've done enough now to get my attention. Um, and what God does here, guys, is called judgment. And again, the natural man, the non-Christian, and I, dare I say even the complacent Christian will look at this and say, well, gosh, God, that's kind of harsh. Who are you, O oh man? Um, God is always our creator. And every act he ever has done is always good. And it's always right. And it's always perfect. And God's plan from the very beginning, twice he says it, Go multiply, fill the earth, and, and get out there and go. And now twice, on two separate occasions, we have man actively rebelling against this. 
you know what the biggest, one of the largest reasons that people are leaving the Christian faith is? Take a guess. Take a guess as to why you think people are leaving the Christian faith. I'm sorry? What do you mean by that? She, I think she said other Christians. Go ahead. <laughs> what, what is wrong? You spoke up. You got to say something. Go ahead. What, why do you think I people think, are leaving I think the faith? She, I think she meant maybe the actions of other Christians. And oh, the, the actions of other, like hypocrisy yeah, or? exactly. Sure, yep. Huge reason people are leaving the faith. Any other guesses? Why are people leaving the Christian faith or at least having, going to church with high, high doubts? Disobedience. Uh, it was said over here, but not enough churches. Do you mean in, they can't find a church or? Um. Have you ever been to Nashville? Um, yeah, I mean, in certain places, there certainly are not enough, but boy, I mean, in certain places, boy, you can't, you can't spit, basically, without hitting two or three of them. Well, the population's growing, and I don't see that there's more churches. Um, div- so they're not keeping up with the population, right. sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the message, though, at least in America, the message is pretty... You're not hard-pressed to wake up. If you're, if you're seeking, you're not hard-pressed to wake up and say, you know, I, I need to find a local congregation. Um, why do you think people are leaving the church? I don't think they want to obey. Yeah, they, there, there's this issue of if I, if I go to church, I have to adhere to this book. Guys, here's, here's, let me just throw this out, kind of give you some, as it pertains to what we're seeing here. Um, a lot of people are leaving or reconsidering because they don't feel like the punishment fits the crime. In other words, when you say to someone, John 14, 6, you're going to get pushback. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Do, do you see any other way to heaven in Jesus' declaration in John 14, 6, other than himself. Do you, do you find any? Is that a hard passage to understand? Is that a, is that a confusing or dip? No. Jesus clearly and simply said, and that's not the only place he said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you, if you know me, you know the Father. If you don't know me, you don't know the Father. That was his mission to come on earth and proclaim the gospel. And when you share that with somebody, the pushback you get is exclusivity and the, the crime doesn't fit, the punishment does not fit the crime, which means that if you push the issue, which hopefully your friends and neighbors and coworkers will do, well, what if I don't believe in Jesus? And what if I die? What is your answer to be, according to the Bible? You will spend an eternity apart from God is the nice way to say it. You'll go to hell. For how long? Forever. And this is where you have the rub. This is where the pushback is, you got to be kidding me. Um, this is where uh, we, have, um, we have things that are, are made to, um, to, to skirt around that issue. Um, something like, well, there, there needs to be a, you know, a penance or something I can do to make up for it. And, and the scriptures say you die once and then you face judgment. That's it, period. That's a hard truth. 
And I'm not saying it's easy by any means. And I'm not saying that that's not something I've wrestled with in terms of, man, God, how does that work? But at the end of the day, I can't deny that. That's one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. There is a hell. It lasts forever. If your name is not written in the book of life, that is your destination, period. So society pushes back and they say, well, that's intolerant. That, you know, I understand if you need to punish someone for a little bit. But when you say something like that, I just can't subscribe to that. I'm sorry, I just can't. You know, and on some levels, guys, let's just, can we just admit on some levels, I get that. But if you, if you get some things tonight, get this. God's character doesn't change based on whether you get it or not. And so if God says it, I've got to spend my life as a believer in him trying to understand, God, why did you say it? And what does that mean and how does that apply to me? But it doesn't change my message in the heat of the moment at the grocery store when I'm sharing with somebody. My answer can never be, well, that's just a confusing topic and I really don't know. There are confusing topics that I really don't know about. Um, Dancing, I don't know. Can you dance or not? I don't know. But heaven and hell is not a confusing topic in terms of who's going to which location. So these people are rebelling against God and now they have his attention. And now judgment's going to fall on them. We see judgment throughout the scriptures. And again, the skeptical, annotated Bible, they're going to have a field day with that. Because it makes God out to be some... um, evil God that just wants to punish people. And that's just simply not the case. If you're a parent in here, you fully well know when you tell your children to do something, you don't do it prayerfully out of anything but love for them. Even if it's as simple as clean your room, you understand why you need a clean room. And there's nothing more frustrating as a parent than having to do what to your kid? Before you scold them, Having to repeat it. (laughs) Right? I mean, and that's with a parent to a kid about cleaning your room, how frustrated you get. How frustrating do you think it would be if I say, go fill the earth, multiply, and then I get, not only are we not going to do that, but we're going to build a tower to kind of set our fortress right here, God, to show you we're not moving. Almost as if to say, as we puff out our chests, let the games begin here. Remember, um, uh, what was the, t- uh, Forrest Gump. Remember Forrest Gump? And the, the, the Captain Dan, or whatever his name, Lieutenant Dan, and climbs up on the mast as the ship is kind of, you know. And he basically, remember, he's, just, he's like swearing at God, like, come on, if you want to come get me, come get me. And is that all you've got? Yeah, and the, you know, the boat's going, of course that's not all God has. And this is what's happening right here in Genesis 11. They're puffing their chest out saying, is this what you've got, God? You want us to go scatter and fill the earth? Well, we're not going to do it. So the ball is in your court now. Verse 5. And the Lord came down. Um, We have a little bit of time because as I read this passage, my initial reaction was um, about this issue. Maybe it's, it's a question that you may have as well. What do you mean the Lord came down? 
came down from where? Well, he came down from heaven. Okay, but if he came down from heaven to earth, then where wasn't he? He wasn't on earth because he had to come down to earth. Well, guys, there's a, you know, that speaks against the challenge of this issue that you may have heard, you know, in church or, or in Bible study about God's what? His omnipresence. God is everywhere. But wait a minute now. And again, if I pulled up that annotated Bible, they would say the same thing, which is, now wait a minute, I thought you Christians, you religious people said that God is omnipresent. Well, why would he have to come down if he's omnipresent? It's a good question. But that shouldn't cause you to close your Bible and throw your hands up. So let's let some clear passages interpret some unclear passages. Um, And that way, guys, when we read the psalm that says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. When we read the passages about David falling in love with God's word, he says he meditates on it day and night, that God, but we would have that heart. I think sometimes when we read those passages and we see how much I love your word, God, we read that and we think, well, yeah, you had it easy, David, because you understood everything in the Bible. No. I think David was as confused as you and me. Confusion should never keep us from falling in love with God's word. We need to ask for wisdom. So, just to help us out with this particular passage, take your Bibles and go to the middle. Go to Psalm 139. Real quick. Go to Psalm 139 right in the middle. Because what I want us to do is I want us to both understand this and give you just a couple of resources so that if you're in a conversation with someone at some point in time and they say, for instance, Genesis 11.5, how could God come down if he's omnipresent? Uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, Psalm 139, look at verse 7 and following. Verse 7 and following, where can I go from your spirit, David says, and where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. If your right hand will lay hold of me, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. And the light will be my night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. Okay, so we have an instance there of God's presence being everywhere. Go to the right, just a few more books. Go to the book of Jeremiah, if you would. Go to the right, just a few more books. And go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, Look at verse 23. How about that? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I don't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? There are other passages, but for time's sake, let me just conclude this. You don't need to worry if God is omnipresent. Because Scripture dictates clearly He is. It doesn't alleviate what we're dealing with in 11.5. I just need you to know, let the clear interpret the unclear. The clear is, God is in the heavens and the earth. God does not, you don't need to, let me ask you. 
just raise your hands and, and we'll get the mics out there. What is the benefit to you knowing that God is omnipresent as opposed to being in one place at one time? What is the benefit to you as a believer in Jesus Christ here right now knowing that the God you worship is omnipresent? Why is that a benefit as opposed to he's somewhere but he's not right here? Because guys, if we can't get to why it matters to me, then yeah, it's just theory. So why is it a benefit for us to know God is omnipresent? Because he will never leave you. He's there always. You're never alone. I'm sorry, you got just a little bit louder. I said he never leaves you. You're never alone. He is always with you. And that's a promise. God never leaves us. And so even in our darkest hour, God is there. That's a great truth. That's a great... That's God's word, guys. That's God's word causing me to have joy in the midst of my pain, for instance, because of a truth in his word is omnipresence. Yeah. Um, so I guess my thoughts and in regard to your E there with the Lord came down, the reason that it's so important is because he does have a path and he gives us our free will. But when he comes down, he redirects us as to where it is that he really wants us to go. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get to this in just a second because it's, but that's exactly what one of the uh, positions is as to what it means when he came down. And he's going to do that with them. Yeah. He sees the whole picture. We only see a very small portion of that picture and he sees the whole thing. So we can just rest on that. That's a great truth that, I mean, I need that. I need God to see more than I see. And so I rest in that. Absolutely. Was there another one here? Yeah. Uh, we can't hide uh, our sin from God. We're accountable to him in all things that we do. See, and that's, and I appreciate you saying that because I had that written down as well. Guys, there's natural accountability built into the Christian life if you believe in God's omnipresence. If you believe in God's, listen, okay, true, can I just, um, True confessions, I guess. Um, as I'm prepping this over the week, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just kind of in it, you know, and whatnot. Um, I got to be honest with you. I, and I don't, I'm not a big game fan, like on, you know, the iPads or whatever. Like, I don't do the game thing, which is, if you do it, that's fine. Um, but this, this, there's this one game um, that's, that, like, I think I'm addicted. And... Um, and I didn't know that until as I was prepping, I really wanted to play it. And I had to battle, honest to goodness, I had to mindfully tell myself, God is present with me right here. And which would he rather be honored by? Me moving pieces of candy around, <laughs> level 91, or, or studying his word. And that's, that, so, so natural accountability is built into God being omnipresent. Because he, where can I go? Can I lay my bed in Sheol? You're there, God. I love that. It doesn't save us from sin all the time, but hopefully it sometimes, it, it kind of nudges you to say, hey, uh, you know, God's here. Do you really want to go down that path? He's where we can't be in regards to like our kids and our loved ones and and 
you know, he doesn't miss things as far as like people wronging us or us doing wrong things. That's, you know, gosh, I love that. I love the fact that I don't have to worry if God saw that. Um, I, I, Jennifer's got, my fiance's got two kids, I have three. And so you can imagine between the five of them how many, how many times we deal with tattletaling. They, it's like a high for them to run downstairs. Guess who did what? Um, and God, we don't have to do that with God. We don't ever have to go to God and say, because, in case you missed it, guess what happened over here? Um, justice will be served. And that's a great, uh, that's a comforting thing. There, there will be no injustice. Every wrong will be righted in God's timing and his economy and in his, in his um, dealing out the judgments because he's omnipresent. Yeah, that's great. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, so for me, it just it makes faith possible, kind of what a lot of them are saying, I guess, but I would struggle to have, faith is already hard sometimes, but it would be more difficult thinking he was only in one place at one time. Is, I mean, especially on Sunday mornings, have you ever prayed on Sunday mornings and thought, isn't it amazing that God is hearing my prayer right now and also hearing that person's prayer and hearing the prayer in New York and hearing the prayer in Bangkok and hearing the prayer in Brazil and that's amazing. Uh, that's truly amazing. And, and so I choose, we'll take one more and then, and then move on. I choose to land on that truth and deal with this passage rather than say, oh my gosh, this just blew everything that I've ever known to be true out of the water and now I've got to reinvent my thinking. I'd rather go the other way. And I think we can. Um, the omnipresence is, is really a personal thing in that the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, that's just the simple reality of redemption. Yeah. So it's always true. And this is a special case where an action was taken right. to deal with an issue. And, that's, and so as students of the Word of God, we don't shy away from it. Let's just deal with it. So here are some options. One is, the reason Moses wrote it like that was out of satire. Was basically to mock these people up here. As if to say, because what, what were they trying to do? They were trying to build a building to reach where? Up into heaven. And so what he says is, and the Lord came down. In other words, what he's saying is, is you didn't make it. If God has to come down to your massive structure, you didn't reach him. That's one option, which I think is funny. I think that as the generations came and went and the, the Hebrews were reading this, I think they laughed at that. A second option is simply when we see, because this isn't the only place where we see God walked with Adam and Eve, um, God walked with uh, Noah. When we see things like that, don't be confused about that. I think those are just, it's what we're doing is we're trying to put in a, in a particular moment in time an emphasis at a particular location. In other words, it wasn't that God wasn't here. Moses is just, just trying to let us know God's really here right now. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so I, I need to keep moving here, but but that's, so that's to deal with that particular issue. He's, he exacts judgment in uh, verses 7 and 8. 
And he says, come let us go down there and confuse their language that they may understand their speech. Now here, again, in verse 6, I got kind of confused because it says, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. We see the same thing happening when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the, out of the garden. He said, if they eat the tree of life, they'll become like who? Like us, right? And so he says the same thing here. And when I first read that, I thought, oh, man, is that like, are you being jealous here, God? Are you threatened by that? That's kind of the initial read I had. Maybe you did as well. Until I started thinking about it. And the conclusion, I think, is simply this. What God is saying here is, behold, they are one people and they have all the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Okay. What direction are these people headed right now? Good or evil? What direction are they headed? Evil. So what God is simply saying is, is if I allow this to continue... Guess what they will become more strong in, stronger in? Not becoming like us, but what? Becoming more evil. In other words, guys, and, and here's a, maybe a radical thought. This whole thing, I think, is an act of mercy rather than an act of judgment. God is saying, if I allow you to go down this path any further, (coughs) you will become evil incarnate. Where nothing, there will be no boundaries on how much evil you will accomplish if I allow this to go any further. Therefore, out of my mercy, I'm stepping in and I'm taking charge. I think that that's the way this should be read. Rather than, I'm threatened that they're going to be like me, and so now i got to step in and kick them further down because they figured out the magic code. And if they figure out the magic code anymore, then we better look out here in heaven because they're going to come after us, and then they're going to be like us, and it's all the party's going to be ruined Then we're all gods and then, oh man. And guys, honestly, how could you live the Christian life thinking there is some sort of a trick and if we figure it out, we become God. So his goal while we're on earth is to just get us far enough down and then flip it and get us far enough down and then flip it and get, that's not, that would be futile. That'd be a futile life. But rather, God says, in your free will, if I allow you to go down this path. um, I don't know if we have, do we have the, can we throw my iPad back up? I mean, how many, how much do you need to, look at this. I mean, how, how much news do you need inside the secret world of a teen cartel hitman? If you read this article, this kid was 13 when some drug lord put a gun in his hand and had a guy tied on the ground and said, kill him or I'll kill you. 13. My kid is 13. He got on a bus yesterday to go to school. This kid's 13 and he's got a Glock in his hand and he's got to, he's got to murder somebody. I mean, do you understand if God doesn't hold the reins over kind of in our evil, in our depravity, you can't even imagine. You think the world's bad now. That's under God's control. 
if God steps out, if he becomes non-omnipresent, you don't want to be around. For example, as Chris gets to Revelation 12 to 19, you don't want to be around for those 21 judgments at all. And so I think this was an act of mercy. And here's the act. And this is, I think, just so of God's omnipotence, which is his power. I could wipe them out. I could, you know, I could destroy them. I could crush that building. And God simply says, let us go down there. And, you know, I'm even wondering if, like he said, watch this. Because you have a massive group of people all speaking the same language. We're all speaking the same language. You can hear me clearly. And in an instant, I'm unintelligible to you. We're, we're productive members of society. We're engaged. We're intellectual. We're builders. We're, we got things going on. And in an instant, I can't understand what you're saying right now. And, and so, I, so I find people that can understand what I'm saying. And guys, this is the birth of multiple languages right here. God said, here's been my plan all along. Go fill the earth, multiply it, be fruitful, fill the earth, go do it. And you refuse to do it. So here's the nudge in that direction. Now the downside, the judgment part, if you will, is this. You're talking with your best friend. And I don't know how God split the languages up. I really don't. There's some speculation on that and how, but, it, but the text doesn't say. So you're talking to your best friend one moment, and the next moment you just, you'll never understand him again ever. And you will depart this way, and he or she will depart this way. And that's it. That's the judgment that these people faced out of their rebellion. And through that, God finds one nation and one man in one nation to carry on and carry out his will, and that being Abraham. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't flood us again. He doesn't destroy us again. He says, you're not doing my thing. You're about to embark on a highway to hell, basically. So I'm coming down, and I'm stepping in. I'm changing your languages. Poof. Go, and now disperse, like I told you before to go do, and you refused to do it, so now I'm going to do it for you. And, and that's what happened. And they left. They went, and then they left in each one in their own little people group, and that was the birth of the multiple languages we have right now. God is a lover of language. Um, do you remember in, when Chris taught about in Genesis 1 and 2? Do you remember the seven days of creation? How everything got formed? How did things get formed? God did what? He spoke it. God loves language. He loves words. His words are powerful, where he can say, let there be light, and there was. Jesus is known as what? The word of God. The literal word of God. So, so don't look at this and say, God hates language, or God's trying to get people's attention, is, is the emphasis here. Yeah. Hi, Greg. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this because it's going to be kind of confusing. With Genesis, when the Lord walked, God walked with him, 
in the Garden of Eden, yeah. and then they ate of the fruit of knowledge, and then they were kicked out, and they had to labor and all that kind of thing, and then the rains come, and they destroy the world, and then he sends his son to die on the cross. Why so many things if he knows all things that were going to happen when he set out and made the world? Why did these things happen? Was that to show his discipline of love? And yeah. did um, any of these people know, like after Noah, did Noah tell the people, you know, that pass on about um, the flood, that there was yeah. a great flood that he destroyed the earth because of sin? Not, not only did, great question, not only did uh, Noah pass that information on, but remember Deuteronomy 6, that, that the instructions that moms and dads were given was to teach their children when they got up throughout the whole day and when they went to bed. It was actually for a Jewish, young Jewish boy at the age of 12 or 13, it was almost expected for him to recite the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, from memory. Uh, in fact, if a rabbi, later on, if a rabbi were to, were to come up to a young boy and the young boy wanted to be a disciple of that rabbi, the rabbi would test him by having him recite uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. So, so it was imperative that that information get passed on. Now, back then, it was an oral culture, and so rather than have TV time or rec time, they told stories. And so certainly, these stories were told over and over and over again, and until you couldn't have someone that was there. And so you got to the generations where now they were looking several hundred years back, and that's, again, that's when the authors, the prophets started writing these things down. So the big question, I guess, is if God had created his original plan with Adam and Eve, live in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, would there ever have been a need for who? For who? For Jesus. Which is an interesting, almost philosophical um, issue that thankfully we don't have time to address right now. Um, but you can ask Chris when he gets back. Um, because it really, because, it, you know, so that's looking from beginning to end saying, if all of this, if Adam and Eve just didn't X, Y, and Z, there would have been no need for atonement. The answer, the best answer I've heard is simply this. Um, God had a choice to give us free will or not. And so his options then, once he gives us free choice, his options now are limited in terms of he's got to either let us play it out or he doesn't. And so, and so I, I don't want you to think God's a reactionary God, but in his perfect, infinite wisdom, he created a creation that has inside of it a, uh, a, an ability to choose. And people have said, you know, well, why did Adam and Eve have to do that? You, you would have done no better. I would have done no better. Um, they lasted, you know, whatever, a few days. I would have lasted probably six seconds. Um, and, so, and so none of us would have accomplished anything better than they would have. Um, we all would have sinned, and that sin was imputed to everyone who's ever lived. Um, but real quickly, 
in God's sovereign plan, because God is outside of time, he doesn't do one event and see how the event goes and then says, okay, now I got to rearrange it and do this event and I'll see how it goes. And, and sometimes when we read, especially Genesis, we get that feel that God is kind of tracking along with us. And then when we screw up, a la Adam and Eve and people of Noah's time and, and these people, God's got to react and then he's got to fix it. And then he's got to cut and put band-aids on it. And then, then we kind of walk a little bit further and then the people screw up again. And now he's, you know. And so it's almost like we get to the New Testament and God's just kind of so defeated that he says, okay, I got to give you my son now. And that's unfortunately because we're reading, you know, it's kind of linear like that when we're reading a chronology. It plays out like that. But in God's um, being, he doesn't see it like that because he's not inside of time where he's got to track with us. But for him to communicate the story to us, it has to involve time because we're in time. I mean, what kind of, how would we read the Bible if it said, you know, I mean, the first three words set up the fact that we now have to read it chronologically in the beginning assumes that there wasn't a beginning at one point and now there is and now we have to go all the way to the end in revelation 21 so don't yeah so read it but but again guys go to god with those questions because god wants to talk with you and he's not trying to hide things but we are dealing with an infinite god and guys i i know it's kind of a cheap way to end this tonight but um but I really do have to trust there are certain things I will go to my grave um, never understanding. And that's what we define as faith. And I'm betting my whole life that there is a God and he loves me and heaven awaits me. And I'm betting everything I've got on that, on that truth. Uh, and I could be wrong. Um, but if I'm not, man, it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great afterlife. And um, I've got, you know, I've got my tickets lined up for these authors because I got some questions for them. Um, but what a great place to discuss God's word about heaven. Three things that last forever God, His people, and guess what else? His word. Um, there are going to be Bible studies in heaven, guys, which is kind of cool because the people teaching them are going to be, I think, pretty cool. Uh, anyway, that's my, that's my hope, that's my dream. Um, let me close this in prayer and then we'll talk afterwards. God, thank you for tonight. Uh, you're good to us, Father, and, and I thank you for the, the account of Babel because, um, Father, I want for every single person in this room for you to, quote unquote, come down and see lives that are being well lived. It would be my heart, Father, that um, by a demonstration of people coming tonight, taking time out of their Tuesday night to come, that their heart would say, I want this, Father. And I know after talking with several of these people that that's, that's our desire here at the mine. It's hard to, to apply it. It's hard sometimes, God, when our sin gets the best of us and, and when um, people get the best of us. And so, God, we ask for your help this upcoming week that the times where we are losing our temper, the times where we are making poor decisions, the times where we're spending frivolously, the times where we are lusting, uh, the times where we are getting very angry at our children or spouses. Those times, Father, would you step in 
come down and redirect our thoughts, redirect our paths so that we will get to the end of the day and say, God, thank you so much for stepping in. Um, and then, God, one day you're going to take us home and uh, things will become much more clear. But this side of heaven, we need your wisdom. So, Father, give it to us, please. And we trust in faith that we will receive it uh, for today and, and the rest of this week. In Jesus' holy name, amen. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks.